you, Matt. Good morning, everyone. Greetings to you all in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, to those of you who don't know me, I extend a special greeting to you. We're glad you're here today. Um, We are going to be continuing our study in uh, Daniel, in the book of Daniel. But before we get into actually Daniel, I'm going to go to two verses by introduction first. And you can turn to Jeremiah 29 while we wait on that. I want to just say thank you to the saints here at Boulevard Bible Chapel who support us regularly with your prayers as well as your financial support. And um, we are humbled at your faithfulness to do both of those things for us. And uh, some of you give and you do it anonymously. We don't even know who you are. And uh, that's just extra humbling uh, because we can't single you out to say thank you. And uh, you can't get any brownie points that way for it or anything. But uh, uh, it shows your heart for the Lord. And that's exciting to us. I want to also say thank you uh, for your prayers for Esther yesterday. She flew by herself uh, up to Nashville where she's going through staff training uh, to serve for three weeks this summer at Horton Haven Christian Camp. And uh, so that was a little nerve-wracking as a parent. Um, brought back memories. I remember when she was just a few days old, holding her in my arms, knowing that someday I'm going to have to give her up to the Lord. So I said, I better do it now. Uh, but it's a whole lot different when you're actually sending them off. And uh, it's only for, I mean, we're going to see her next week, right? Next This week we drive up and we'll meet her at camp. Uh, but still, it was with fear and trembling. And those of you who are further down the parenting trail than we are, uh, you're probably laughing at me right now. But, oh well. Um, one day at a time, we're, we're pressing forward. But thank you. We should pray, as was mentioned, staff training starts at Camp Horizon this next Sunday. And uh, pray for them. Pray that God will truly equip them to serve this summer. Uh, pray for the campers who will go. But, you know, the enemy doesn't like Christian camps. Because it's life transforming when you take kids out of their natural habitat, away from their pressures and relationships from home and get them under the word of God in a totally different surrounding for a week uh, with the counselors living that closely with them day in and day out. They're really like surrogate parents and they're tossed in there as a teenager, not knowing really what parenting's all about. <laughs> um, but God does amazing things through these young people. And I remember the impact that the counselors and staff had on my life growing up. And uh, a lot of them modeled the Christian life for me as I'd never seen before. And uh, they inspired me to follow Christ. And uh, that's what we are encouraging our young people who go to do. Not just to get caught up in the fun, because camp is plenty of fun. But the eternal opportunities that God presents. And the joy it is to see a soul changed for Christ. And uh, that's what's in the balance here as they go. And so let's pray for them as they get ready. Now, if you're someone who uh, or someone in your family is camp camper age, I just want to tell you it's not too late to sign up, right? Uh, You better do it quick because some of the weeks are getting fairly full. But uh, camphorizon.org and you can register someone to go to camp. Uh, Before I forget, Nate Bramson ran out of his prayer cards the other day and he left a stack. And uh, until they run out, there's some more on the back table back there so we can continue to pray for him uh, as he continues to serve the Lord as he goes throughout not only this summer, but in the days and months ahead. All right. Perhaps you're already in Jeremiah chapter 29. I I bring you here because 
someone quoted the verse this morning, one of the young people up here, a very famous verse from this chapter. And it's Jeremiah 29, 11, which we love to encourage ourselves with. It says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Isn't it nice to know that God's plans for us are for our good, right? Not to bring calamity upon us, but his his thoughts, his plans toward us are to give us a future and a hope. But, you know, when you recognize the context of this verse, it is amazingly striking. See, because this letter, if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, it says in verse one, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive. To the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, this letter didn't come when Daniel first arrived there. There was actually three waves of uh, uh, where, where Nebuchadnezzar carried away captives back to Babylon. The first wave was when Daniel was taken in 605 B.C. The second one came in 597 B.C. And the last one came in 586 B.C. And that's the one where they totally burned the temple. They, they broke down the walls of the city. They, they burned the houses, the king's house. Everything in the city was destroyed. And they only left the, the weak and the sick and those who really couldn't defend themselves. And they didn't want them with them anyway. And they carted everyone off to Babylon. So there were three different waves of exile where people were taken away. But see, It was no surprise. Jeremiah had been prophesying to them for many, many years. In fact, in Jeremiah 25, he says, for 23 years, I've been telling you that this was coming. From the days of Josiah, where the beginnings were just stirring, where people were departing away from the Lord, God sent messengers like Jeremiah to tell them, if you keep turning away from the Lord, calamity will come. And if you don't turn away, eventually he's going to allow people to come who will take you away. And the day finally came. But even in the midst of this calamity, this was the word of the Lord to those captives. He said, listen, my plans for you are still for your good, to give you a future, to give you a real and lasting hope. But for now, you have to endure some troubled times. Now, these words were written to Israelites. But we realize, listen, we still live in a day of troubled times, don't we? We still live in a day where calamities and troubles are our daily experience. And in the midst of that, God would like to remind us, I still have a plan. I'm still working it out. I want to give you, bring you into the, the hope, the future that I have in store for you. But you're going to have to endure for a while longer. And so that is the word that was specifically given to the captives like Daniel. And it was not an easy thing for them. In fact, I'm reminded of, of, of the verse in Psalm 105 that talks about when Joseph, there was a famine in the land, calamity came upon him. He was sold off into slavery, taken to a foreign land. And even while it was there, it says, until the word of the Lord came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So he knew Joseph was given a, a dream early on of what would happen in the future. And yet he was still sold off into slavery. He was still put into prison. He still had difficult times. And the word of the Lord was in his heart and his mind, but it tested him. He had to to reason out and, and balance my experience and the promise of God. How do they fit together? 
Well, they're not seeming to fit yet. But what am I going to lean on? My own reasoning and my experience? Or am I going to put further weight in the promise of God? And the testimony of both Joseph and Daniel is that they leaned on the Lord. They trusted in God and His Word and His promises. And we look to their lives as examples and heroes to us of how we're to live in our own lives. Because that's what we're going to be looking at today as we turn to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be looking into the lives of two people who were in desperate situations. And how did they respond to these desperate situations? That's what we want to consider this morning. All right. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 2. And uh, the verse that I put up here is not from chapter 2, but it says, The Most High God rules in the kingdom of men. This is the quote from chapter 4. It's coming in a few weeks, but it's a good verse to summarize what we're talking about. Here in the affairs of men, both in individuals and kingdoms, God is working. And it doesn't always see, we can't always see how he's working, but he is, and we have to trust that. And that's what we're going to see in this passage here today. And before we actually get into the story, I'd just like to pause and let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer together once again, shall we? Lord, we come to the pages of your word once again, knowing that they are truly inspired by you and that everything that's written here was written purposefully to give us what we need to be able to learn from their life examples, both good and bad, that we might uh, not make the same mistakes, that we might follow their example, that we might be spurred on by their, the witness of their lives, to run the race of life that you've given to us. And this morning, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that are there that we know are absolutely certain. Father, we would just pray that as we look at the lives of these two men today, that you would grant us the ability to have open hearts to receive what you'd have to show us today. That you would give us discerning hearts to hear when you speak to our hearts and how you would have us to apply these lessons to our own lives. So that as we leave here, we too will not only be tested by these words, but come forth and be found faithful. So, Father, as we thank you again for being here with us and giving us this time together and in our own land of freedom, we thank you for that. We pray that your word would go forth with power. And if anything that is said here would uh, not be of you, that you would just help it to fall to the wayside and that, what is, Lord, you would cause to stick and endure and find root in our hearts that would bear fruit for the honor and glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the first man we're going to look at today is the King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon who has now conquered all these people and brought them to his city of Babylon. Now, Last week, we were considering what it was like to be in Babylon. And Daniel was one of these captives who were taken. And he was put through this rigorous training, three years of training, it says, from the king, so that at the end of the time, he might be equipped to serve before the king. And there was lots of people taken, but not many who were found faithful like Daniel and his three friends. And so there's a lesson here for us, right? We're all going through difficult times. We all go through things just like they all did, but not all of us are going to come through like we should. Now, we learned some great examples from Daniel and his three friends, the most important of which I think kind of key to the, to the whole book was in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portions of the king's delicacies 
all the things that the king provided, which would have been a distraction to him. He had to discern which of these things can I endure without affecting my relationship with God? And which of these things, if I go along with it, is going to defile my own heart, is going to separate me from God and render me out of communion and fellowship with God so that God cannot bring those things to pass that he wants to in my life. And so he realized that the the food that was being presented before him, he could not participate in, according to God's word. It was offered to idols. It was not on the list of approved uh, foods that God had lined out for them in Leviticus. And so he said, I can't do that. And that's a whole nother story. And I believe we're going to come back to the last part of chapter one again in a future week, in the next week or so. And so I'm not going to tread on other people's story ground, but simply to say God honored that decision. And we see at the end of the chapter, as he was brought at the end of the three years in before the king, verse 20 tells us that Well, verse 19, when the king interviewed them among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Therefore, they served before the king and in all the matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. And thus, Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So the first test that he had, he passed. He purposed in his heart. He made a decision in advance the course that he was going to take. I'm going to align my life to follow God first. Friend, have you made that commitment? I trusted in Christ as my Savior as a young person. But I still remember the day at 17 years old, January 21st, 1987. I responded to God's word and the challenge in it to give my everything to the Lord. Lord, whatever you want me to be, wherever you want me to go, whatever nickel or penny that I have, whatever job you want me to take, whatever country you want me to go to, I'm yours. 100% yours. Now, as a living sacrifice, Romans 12 calls that, sometimes I try crawling off the altar. But the Lord knows my heart and He... He brings me back and he knows yours too. But I'd like to ask you, have you ever purposefully, like Daniel, chosen to just give your all to the Lord as a believer in Jesus Christ? Now, listen, if you're not saved, if you don't know the Lord is your savior, you're not a child of God. That doesn't make you one. Being good doesn't make you a child of God just as much as going into the garage doesn't make you a car. You stand there all day. It won't make you a car. You have to be made a car. And we are made children of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ who died for us to pay the penalty of our sin. That's the starting place if you don't know the Lord is your Savior. But if you are a child of God, let's give ourselves wholeheartedly to Him like Daniel did. Now, no sooner had he been uh, through this little education of his, we come to chapter 2, and this is our story for today. Nebuchadnezzar, It says, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. The three things I want to highlight about Nebuchadnezzar today is, first of all, his dream, his decision, and then his decree. And we're going to see the way he responds to this crisis in his life and the lessons we learn from him contrasted with the lessons we'll see in Daniel are very powerful. It says that he had this dream. Well, actually, it says he had dreams. Notice the S at the end. It's plural. 
What does that mean? It seems to indicate that Nebuchadnezzar was having a recurring dream. He had it multiple times. And so it says that when he had these dreams, his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. He could no longer fall asleep. He was troubled. And so the king gave the command, verse 2, to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And so they came and stood before the king. So here they are. He's no longer asleep. He can't go back to sleep. He said, well, if I'm not sleeping, no one else is either. Bring in all the wise men. And so he calls the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and they all come in before him. And he tells them, verse 3, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Now, based on the context, there's a little bit of a, a disagreement or confusion. Does he really remember the dream or not? Because verse 4 says, oh, oh, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O oh, king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. But the king answers and he says to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So you understand what's happening, right? He says, I'm distressed by this dream and I want to know what it means. But he's not telling them the dream. They're waiting for, the, they're waiting for him to tell them and they'll come up with an answer. But in the midst of all this, Um, he says, no, I'm not going to tell you. And uh, my, my decision is very firm. I'm not going to change on this, so don't even try. You need to tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you know what it really means because you'll have insight that I don't have. Now, I just want to say, we all have dreams, right? Sometimes our dreams are troubling. But why should this be so troubling to him? You know, they didn't have a, a, the Bible the same way we do. And so it was common in those days that God would communicate through dreams. And it, it, it's very clear as you read throughout the chapter that God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to communicate a message to him. And when we get to later in the chapter, and we're just going to jump ahead to look, it says in verse 29, as Daniel comes before him later, he says, O king, thoughts came to your mind while you were on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. He says, King, I already know what you were dreaming about. You were dreaming about the future. You had questions about what's going to happen in the future and what you were thinking about troubled you. And so God has given you this dream because he wants to reveal to you what you need to know. And my friends, I would just like to say at the beginning of this, it's good for us to think about the future. We don't like to think about the future sometimes. Sometimes when we're young, we like to dream about it. But a lot of what we don't know troubles us about the future. And where do we go for answers? God was providing an answer. We need to look to God for the answer. Where did he... T now, this is what I was going to say about ne the example of Nebuchadnezzar in desperate times, right? He was severely troubled. This recurring dream kept coming to him and he wanted answers and there were none to be found within him. And so he was looking for answers. And so when we are overwhelmed by the pressures of life, where do we go? 
First of all, we tend to look within ourselves, don't we? Well, what do I need to do? And we try to come up with some decision to go forward about our situation. But he found that that was not enough. And if you're trying to solve your problems and to fix your life and to deal with all the pressures that are around you, the desperate situations, and you're looking to yourself, you're eventually going to find the same thing. That's why all these people who seem to have it made out in Hollywood and, 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 and the stars, they have all the money and resources at their disposal, and yet they still come up empty. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, I didn't deny myself anything in this pursuit. I spent all the money necessary, tried all the fun, all the things that I thought would make me happy and address the problems of my life, and it was vanity, emptiness. Are you there yet? The Bible says, Solomon said, Remember your Creator in your youth before those evil days come. And you say, I have no pleasure in my life because you've missed the only source that you're going to find fulfillment. Any kind of real hope is in God Himself. And so we can learn even right here from Nebuchadnezzar. Listen, we can't just turn to ourselves. But what does he do? He calls for his wise men. Oh, yes, let me just bring some others into this equation. Sometimes we look to other people to solve our own problems and needs. Some people get married because they think, oh, yes, all my problems and loneliness and all will be solved if I just get married. Ask someone who's already married if that solves all your problems. It doesn't. Marriage is a wonderful thing. I'm so glad the Lord provided a wife for me and I'm happy with my marriage. But it's not perfect. You have two sinners living under the same roof. You've got two sets of problems. And yet you're all working through them together. But see, we do get to work through them together. We look to the Lord and He gives us help. But we can't only look to one another. People who look to their closest friends, family, spouses for that deep and satisfying uh, 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 fulfillment in life are going to be disappointed. It's only found in the Lord. That's what the Lord says. We were made for Him. He made us in such a way that we can commune with Him. And without that, everything else is still going to leave us empty. So He goes to... But these weren't just ordinary people. These were the astrologers, the sorcerers, the magicians, the soothsayers, the Chaldeans. These are the five words to describe this group of people. Now, it's unclear whether there was a certain group of them that were magicians and a certain group of them that were sorcerers. It seems that the whole cast of the Chaldean people practiced all these things. In fact, when you look at Daniel's training, it says that, uh, uh, that he excelled them all in all these things. In other words, the wisdom that was needed, God gave him apart from going to the things that they went to. They went to the demonic realm. They went to the occult. They made magic spells and they, and, they, and they consulted demons and spiritists and all these things to try to come up with their answers. They went to their foreign gods. And that was the kind of religion that Nebuchadnezzar had. And I believe that's why Daniel wasn't called. It appears by the timing that this is very soon after chapter 1 where he already graduated and was considered better than them. But you know what? He wasn't one of them. And so I say that because when you look later on in Daniel chapter 5 when, when the handwriting is on the wall and here Daniel's been there serving for some 50, no, 70 years. They still didn't call him. They called all the Chaldeans and the sorcerers and the magicians and they didn't call Daniel because he was, he was an outsider. He wasn't really born into the group. But he calls them all and he wants their help. 
And we'll find in just a minute they knew they didn't have the help that he needed. At least they were honest enough to admit that along the way. And we're going to get there. But the first thing we want to notice is, okay, he had this dream and it troubled him greatly. His decision was to call them. He demanded that they not only come up with an interpretation, but give uh, the dream itself. And they were in a dilemma. They said, we can't do this. No one's ever asked for anything like this. The only one, I love this line, verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king saying, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler has ever asked such things from any magician, astrologer or Chaldean. Verse 11, it's a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods themselves, whose dwelling is not with flesh. He says, we're not one of them. They don't dwell in human form like we do. That's why people don't ask these things of each other. The only one who can tell you are the gods. Now, they didn't know the true God of heaven. They're looking to their own gods, but they know it's beyond their help. And sooner or later, even those who go to false religions will realize the limits that that religion offers them. There's one thing that that culture had that's a little helpful compared to our own. We were reminded last week of the, the humanistic nature of Babylon. The fact that they were consumed with gathering material things for themselves. They were consumed with satisfying their own fleshly desires in hedonism. And they also had their own religion. See, they had this group of gods that they worked with in this religious system. And all this was to try to exalt themselves to the very highest places possible in their present experience in life. But you see, we are caught up in a humanistic society ourselves, but it's a secular humanism. Meaning, we've left out the religion part. We are in a society that teaches that we can experience all that we can experience without bringing God into the equation. At least they recognize there must be some sort of God beyond themselves. And it was kind of obvious since they had their idols and things that they did. The idols of our society are invisible. So we deceive ourselves saying there is no God. The Bible says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We know. Just like holding a basketball underwater, you can only hold it down there for so long and you can't let up for one second or else it's going to come flying up. And we try to say, there is no God. No, 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 no. Don't look over here. No, 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 no. And sooner or later, in our hearts, the truth is exposed and we have to make a choice. Are we going to suppress the truth in unrighteousness or admit the truth that we need God? Well, they weren't there yet. But they knew it was beyond them. And the stakes were high. The decree of the king said, unless you can tell me both the dream and the interpretation, you're all going to die. So they try to reason with him. But ultimately, the king, it says, verse 12, for this reason, the king was angry and very furious. And he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men. And they sought out Daniel and his companions to kill them too. Now, this is interesting, right? They didn't think to bring Daniel and his friends in for any consultation. But since he's really a part of the cast and the group all together, now that they're all being destroyed, they go to, you know, go to gather them all up and they're going to destroy him. (laughs) 
We probably can relate to what that's kind of like. But finally, they come to Daniel. And uh, they're, they're going to take them out to kill him. And verse 14 tells us we're going to learn something different about Daniel. And the things that we're going to look at briefly regarding him, right? We're going to see his faith in action. We're going to see the fellowship that he had in the midst of this trial. We're going to see his prayer as well as his praise. All these things are examples to us as we deal with our own trials. See, because the king was in a distressing situation because he had a dream that he had no answer for. What does it mean? I, 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 uh, somehow it seems important. It's troubling to me. I have questions with no answers. And he went to all these places, as we've already said, within himself, friends around him, false gods, all bringing him to emptiness. Useless for, for changing the situation, for getting the answers that he desperately needed. And his fear gripping him just as much. But now, here's Daniel. He's brought into a situation outside of his control, very distressing. Without any provocation or knowledge of, this, of what's going on, suddenly the, the, the guards show up at his door to arrest him to bring him off to execution. Rather desperate situation. But he, it says, verse 14, Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. I want to just, know, just highlight a couple words that are said here to, to show us the heart of Daniel in the midst of this situation, right? I mean, try to put yourself in his shoes. You're being arrested, probably not very gently, to bring you off to execution. You might be a little afraid, stressed. You know, you're just a lowly Israelite captive in Babylon, right? But it says, with counsel and wisdom, he answers Arioch. He wasn't in a place of... Uh, of um, Uh, the word is escaping me. He still had composure. He didn't lose all control of his mind and his actions. He stopped and he reasoned and he was thinking and his response was with counsel and wisdom and he appeals to Arioch to engage him on the situation. It's very much like what happened in chapter 1 where it says, Daniel went and requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He's thinking outside the box. He's trying to make appeal. There's humility involved. There's also um, uh, initiative being shown. He's moving forward, not in a state of fear, but in faith that God will do something. How do I know that? Because it says he goes into the king and he says, King, give me some time so that I might tell you the interpretation. Like that's not what everyone else asked for, right? Hey, King, tell us the dream. We'll tell you what it means. This time, Daniel goes in and he says, just give me some time. I don't even know about this situation. But if you'll give me some time, I believe God will give the interpretation. God will supply what is needed in this circumstance. That is stepping forward in faith in our God and not running in fear, right? And that's why I started with this whole idea of Joseph. Daniel had the promises from God's word that God still had a plan. And the plan, somehow he put him in the king's palace. 
and he passed. God honored his decision to serve him, and he's brought him through all that just to drop me now? No, listen, child of God, God has not brought you this far to drop you now. He sent his son to, to pay the penalty of your sin when we wanted nothing to do with him. And now that he's filled you with his Holy Spirit and he's conforming to the image of his son, is he just going to forget about us? No. So when we're faced with these distressing circumstances, we can find a way with counsel and wisdom and faith in God to move forward somehow, trusting in him in the midst of that circumstance. Now, what he'll do, we don't know. We'll see in the next chapter. They really didn't know. But he was he was putting his trust in God. He believed that God would somehow bring a solution here. So what does he do? We see his faith, but now Daniel went to his house, verse 17, and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. He found his few close friends that he could share this with. And they went to the Lord together in prayer. Now, this is interesting that we see this, right? Daniel had three friends. When Jesus was on earth, when he was at his most distressing moment in life, The Garden of Eden, where he's about to be arrested and then crucified. And he tells his disciples, I'm I'm under extreme anxiety. I need to go pray to the Father. And he invites who? Peter, James, and John. Come with me. He leaves his other disciples and he draws closer with a few close friends to go pray. Even the Apostle Paul. When at the end of his life in 2 Timothy, he writes a letter to Timothy and says, listen, only Luke is with me. Come. Bring those parchments. Bring the cloak. Bring John Mark. He's useful to me. Luke, Timothy, John, three friends to sit with him in his time of imprisonment, right? We can't live the Christian life alone. We're going to need a few close friends brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can come to in times of trouble and say, listen, pray for me. I'm stressed. Pray for me. I've got a problem. Maybe we need to even confess our faults to one of those few friends and say, listen, I blew it. I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something I shouldn't have done. I've sinned and I want to get right with God. The enemy is attacking me and I feel like I'm still uh, guilty and filthy before God. And I can't quite lay hold of the peace of God's forgiveness, like I knew before. And we can pray for one another. And that's what Daniel and his friends did. He went to his house, he told them, and immediately they prayed. Verse 18, he told them that they might seek the mercies from God, the God of heaven concerning this secret. So they went to pray. So he went and got his friends. Well, he stepped out in faith, trusting God in that moment of need. Rather than run in his fear, he found his few close friends, fellowshipping in Christ, drawing close with them before the Lord, and he began to pray. And it says, they began to seek his mercies from the God of heaven concerning the secret. And so that Daniel and his friends may not perish with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. So what happens, right? So they're they're pouring out their hearts to God. It's interesting that it's only one little verse here, but I'm sure that wasn't a two-minute prayer meeting. Right? They were crying out in desperation for the Lord to answer. But the interesting thing to me is verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel while they prayed. 
Well, that's not what it says, right? Verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Wait a minute. You mean Daniel was asleep? I thought he was praying. Well, perhaps you've been there. We've read about it in other people's journals and writings about laying hold of the Lord in, in prayer. There's sometimes... Oh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Don't be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? When I've been anxious and gone to pray, usually that two-minute prayer doesn't cut it. I get up, I'm like, well, Lord, I'm still kind of stressed. I've got to go back. Even the Lord had to go back three different times before he could rise up in peace and say, come on, my betrayer's at hand. Sometimes we've got to keep praying until we have that breakthrough where we really have cast our burden upon the Lord, where the Lord has heard our heart's desire and granted the peace of saying, okay, you can go now because the answer is on the way. And somehow Daniel was able to sleep knowing that the answer was on the way. And so God gave him the answer in his dream. And so while he's asleep, God reveals to him the king's dream and the interpretation. So Daniel, he gets up in the morning and he runs off to the king and says, I got the answer. No, he does something else first, right? Verse 19. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He took the time to praise and thank God for bringing the answer. Sometimes we forget that, right? But he didn't forget. He blessed God for who he is and what he had done. And there's a lot of neat things we could learn about prayer there. Um, But let's at least learn from the pattern, right? Step out in faith. We need that fellowship of other believers to pray and to praise God as we face these trials. And he answers along the way. So he goes and he calls the king. He's already prayed. And he goes before the king and he comes. And uh, he finds Arioch again, and Arioch brings him into the king, trying to take credit for the whole thing. Uh, but when Daniel stands before the king, okay, verse 26, the king asks him, are you able to make known to me the dream which I've seen and its interpretation? And now Daniel has the opportunity to testify of what God has done. Now, all along the way, any point along the way, he could have said, and so I'm here to help you. But not once does he try to take any credit for himself. And again, we see the great humility of Daniel and his confidence in the Lord. But he says, verse 27, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, they cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to the king what will be in the latter days. And so your dream, the visions of your head were these. And so he begins to tell him the dream. Now, the dream is all wrapped up in this image, this image made of different gold, uh, of different metals. And uh, I don't know what the image looked like. Maybe it looks like Nebuchadnezzar himself. But maybe what distressed him so much was this great image was suddenly this stone that came from heaven, uncut by human hands, but came and toppled the whole entire thing over. The rest of the, the, the statue was ground to powder and blown away, and the stone grew up into a great mountain, and uh, the king was greatly troubled by this. And so um, Daniel begins to give him 
he explains what he saw in the dream. And as soon as he gives him the dream, he then says, that was the dream. Now I can tell you what it means. Now, we're never going to cover the whole dream. But it's important to note the essentials of the dream. This dream is considered by some to be the ABCs of prophecy. I forget how Mike worded it last week, but it's, it's kind of the, the, uh, the seed plot or the, the, the basic structure for all the rest of future prophecy throughout the Bible. And um, God was revealing this to Nebuchadnezzar. And as he does, he says, okay, yes, there was a head of gold on your, uh, your image in the dream. And each different part of the statue was made of a different metal. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then the feet were iron and clay. And then this stone comes out of nowhere and knocks it down. He says, that's the dream. But the interpretation of it, Daniel wants him to know, listen, this is a future forecast of all the kingdoms of earth until the end times. And Jesus himself refers to the things taught from Daniel's prophecies and calls it the times of the Gentiles. Now, we have to to have that in context, understand that God had told the Israelites that he was going to work through them to be a blessing to the world. And his God's seat of power would rest in Jerusalem through the son of David that would reign forever there. But through the disobedience of God's people, they were now taken captive to Gentiles, non-Jews. And so God is revealing that this period of Gentile domination called the times of the Gentiles was going to continue for a good long time. And he said each of these metals are going to be representing different earthly kingdoms. And so he goes on in the interpretation. He tells them uh, in verse 37, you king are a king of kings. Uh, God's given you a kingdom, power and strength and glory. And you are that head of gold. The beginning of this whole entire, the capstone of these rulers of the Gentiles that will rule the world. And uh, he says, that's you, Babylon. And it's already started as of 606 or 605 BC. But he says, after you, there's going to be another kingdom. And it's going to be a little lower than you. And so it's represented by a different metal and it's lower on the, uh, on the statue. And it, it represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, at this time, Daniel didn't tell him it was the Medo-Persian Empire, but later Daniel has dreams of his own and visions, and God tells him, this second kingdom that's coming will be the Medes and the Persians together in one, one uh, um, dominant world power. And you can see the picture in the two arms in that, uh, uh, that next kingdom represented in the, in the statue. But then after that is another kingdom, and God reveals this to Daniel later also, that it represents the nation of Greece. And it's, again, a lesser kingdom, but it won't last for very long. It's going to give way to others. And so then the legs represent the, the, the empire of Rome and that all these things happen in history. That's why the people who don't believe the Bible don't like Daniel, because uh, uh, for him to predict these things in advance validates that Daniel was a prophet of God and God does miracles and he knows and predicts the future and people don't want to accept that. So they come up with all kinds of arguments that they'll tell our kids when they get to college that Daniel really is a book written by someone who pretended to be Daniel years and years later after the close of the Old Testament so that they can show, I mean, I tell you, Daniel chapter 11 is so precise in all the history from, from Malachi to Jesus that there's no middle ground. You either believe God knows and predicts the future and told it, or that this book is a phony. And um, it's amazing. We don't have time to get into that. But anyways, then we have some kingdom later on, this 
iron and clay mixed together is going to come and this kingdom of God, this stone uh, that comes from heaven that pulverizes the whole thing. Uh, now, I have question marks here because those things haven't happened yet. What we learn from the, the New Testament is that there's this gap in the middle that, that wasn't revealed to them, the church age where we live in today. So all this left of the crumbling of the times of the Gentiles is still yet future, but we, leave, but we believe very soon in coming because of the rest of Scripture and what it tells us about the end times. And so we could be right there next to that last revived empire, still partly of the Roman influence, but mixed with something else that makes it very unstable according to God's Word. Now, so much more can be said about this, I know. People have done a lot better job than me at going through it. But I'd just like to say, what was the result? The result of God revealing this to Nebuchadnezzar, he falls down prostrate before, Dan- prostrate before Daniel. Amazing. Here's an 18-year-old kid captive from Israel, and here's the king in all of his splendor, and he falls down on his face before Daniel because he realizes the true God of heaven has spoken to this young man. And he has revealed what no one else on earth could ever reveal. The Bible says, if you're a child of God, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And and Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're nothing. You know, my flashlight, without the battery in it, it's just a paperweight. Without Christ in me, I'm nothing. I'm a sinner, a broken clay pot. But, it's, but the, the, Ron's here today, your favorite verse in the New Testament, right? About how God has decreed that light should shine out from these, these fractured pots of clay. His light in us, shining to the world. That's what he wants us to be. We're not perfect. Daniel wasn't perfect. But he was willing to let God work in his life. He was willing to let God move through him. Not run away in fear, but move forward trusting God. Praying and praising God. Giving him the credit along the way. Standing there when other men would run. And so, God provided the answer. The need of the day. He provided a witness for himself. It produced in King Nebuchadnezzar a fear of God that he did not have before. It doesn't seem that he's truly loyal and a follower of the God of heaven yet. That comes later in the book. But the work has begun, and God was able to use Daniel as a part of it. And so it says, the king promoted Daniel and gave him great many gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. How will the Lord work in your life? Listen, he may not solve all of our problems. He hasn't promised to save us out of them, but to take us through them. And he will be faithful to do that. But we can't just run away. Let's not be like King Nebuchadnezzar, overwhelmed in our fear and turned to all the wrong places. Let's look to the Lord. And if you're here today, again, if you're not a child of God, you need to look to him for your own forgiveness of sin. Put your trust in him and he will make you his own child, forgive you and give you his Holy Spirit so that these things can be your experience. We sometimes sing a song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. And when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. It's on Christ, the solid rock, I stand.
And we just sang the song a minute ago. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Jesus commands our destiny. If you're a child of God, let us make him our all in all. Lord, as we've once again been in your presence, listening to your word. Lord, we can all relate to these distressing situations, seemingly unsolvable by all of our resources. All the things that we lean on every day leave us empty. We're tempted to just run away, disengage, or just accept the emptiness and the, 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 uh, the consequences of whatever it is coming our way. And yet, we have this example of one who would look to you in the midst of impossible situation to trust in you in spite of what his eyes and his mind might tell him and find that you truly are able You are the God in heaven who rules in the kingdoms of men and that you can reveal even secrets and that you are faithful to fulfill your word. And we thank you for that this morning, Lord. We pray that you would give us a greater faith that as we encounter the attacks of our enemy, the devil himself, that we would have the resources through faith in you to to quench his fiery darts, to stand firm, and uh, to be strong in the Lord, the power of your might, Lord, and not our own. We ask this. We ask that it would be true, not for our sakes, not because we deserve it, but because we belong to your Son, the Lord Jesus, who died for us and is interceding even now for us. It's in his name that we pray, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.